Hi, everybody. It's very nice to be here, although it's not too nice to learn that I've just missed the Huskers season by a month. Uh, I'm truly loving Lincoln, and I thank the Thompson Forum for having me and to you for attending tonight. Uh, I know it's nippy outside, so I'm going to take you all on a safari tonight across the sub-Sahara. So relax, buckle up, don't feed the lions, and do keep your eyes on the big dragon, China. And I'll try not to depress you too much. Let's start in Congo. Can you see Congo in the middle? I'm sitting with Victor Kasango, the most powerful mining official in the nation where 80% of its 60 million citizens live on 50 cents a day. That's Victor. A country, by the way, that's as large as all of Western Europe. There are Chinese business cards scattered on his desk while a security guard down the hall is eating out of a filthy pot in his bare feet. A few floors below, while driving his car through the building's parking garage, a senior ministry official waves to an attendant who, while nonchalantly urinating in a bucket, waves back with his free hand. It's just another day in the Congo. Much further under that garage, in fact, under all of the Congo, lies staggering amounts of every mineral known to man. 10% of the planet's known copper, 30% of its cobalt, 80% of its coltan, which is used in everything from PlayStations and iPods to cutting tools and jet engines, and untold quantities of bauxite and zinc, cadmium, uranium, gold and diamonds, you name it. Now Victor is fresh from a trip to Beijing. Behind him in the picture is the first democratically elected president uh, of Congo, Kabila. And Victor's at a crossroads. He could go with a World Bank-driven plan to restructure the country's nearly bankrupt mining monopoly. It would eliminate debt, lead to a stock offering with a Western investment house, but it would take years. Or he could take as much as $9 billion from China's communist government almost immediately. It would be the biggest single investment China had yet to make on the entire continent, and it would provide massive infrastructure to the Congo. Roads, highways, ports, hospitals, in exchange for a whole lot of those minerals. Is it any surprise which way he turned? After all, just a year ago, Congo had $25 million in reserves, a country the size of Western Europe. Lincoln, Nebraska's police force has a $35 million annual budget, just to put that in some local perspective. If China wants to dominate the world, Victor told me, it's not our business to stop them. Who are we to close the door to them when we don't have electricity and water? The Chinese were the first to listen to our concerns, and they were very receptive. I should mention that Victor's considered one of the best and the brightest of Congo's government officials. He's well-educated in Brussels, worked for Ernst & Young in South Africa, and by all accounts, he's a man of impeccable integrity in a country where just about everybody's on the take. Um, Victor's also on everybody's short list of people who could eventually become president of the country. And I like him. I like him a lot. 
he told me that Americans are not focusing on Africa for business, except for oil. Americans are dormant economically, he said, when they have a pretty good political platform. We asked the World Bank for roads, but they wanted to attach too many conditions. Obviously, we want human rights, and we have a mechanism in place, thanks to the Europeans, but Asians listen to more to our concerns without being patronizing. He then raised his voice at how Western mining firms had cheated the DRC in one exploitative mining deal after another over the past decade, while Congo was weak, vulnerable, and desperate in the middle of two civil wars, and how those Western firms were mining the Western stock exchanges instead of the actual mines that they were controlling, reaping billions while Congo got squat, keeping his country poor. Of course, many citizens of Congo have longer memories to that day in 1986 when U.S. President Reagan praised the country's dictator, Mobutu, a Cold War ally at the time, as a, quote, voice of good sense and goodwill, even as he was financially raping his country and bragging on Western TV that he was the second richest man in the world while his country starved. At the time, documents showed that the Western-controlled World Bank knew that loans they were funneling to Mobutu's government were likely to be stolen or not repaid. By the way, Democratic presidents, as well as the World Bank, have not fared any better there. In that one moment I had with Victor, it crystallized and encapsulated everything for me. Replicate that situation perhaps dozens or hundreds of times across the African continent, and I started to understand how the West was losing in Africa today, defaulting morally and economically, a situation that's only become more magnified by our current financial crisis and recession. Over the past decade, and mostly in the past five years, China has announced over $200 billion worth of grants, soft loans, deals, aid packages. The actual amount of aid is a closely guarded secret in China, but it's believed to have now overtaken World Bank assistance. Two years ago, China passed France to become Africa's second biggest trading partner, and we're waiting for the final 2009 numbers, but it appears China has surpassed the U.S. to become the number one trading partner of the continent. With hundreds of billions of untapped wealth at stake, Congo is one of the key prizes and always has been. If you can take the Congo, Chairman Mao said in 1964, we can have all of Africa. Now, Mao had revolution on his mind. Uh, today's party leaders uh, understand that what lies beneath Congo's soil can help China become the world's largest economy faster, and in so doing, maintain their tight grip on their citizens. My visit to Congo was just one leg of a trip to Sub-Sahara that I took for Fast Company magazine to see what China's been doing there in recent years. And, the results are in a 24-page article they published. So what did I find, and why should we even care? Uh, for starters, one has really never cried until they visited the Sub-Sahara. I have to say, it's an unforgivable terrain, 
spanning 42 nations over four-fifths of the African continent, yet its total economy is tinier than New Jersey's. Uh, it's a kingdom where 300 million people, nearly twice as many as just a quarter century ago, get by on less than a dollar a day. Uh, compared to the 1960s, twice as many kids under the age of five are dying each day from disease. So it is in that context that China is now the most aggressive investor nation on that continent. There are more Chinese embassies in Africa than any other nation, and perhaps a million Chinese are circulating there, and nobody knows the exact figures. Actually, before I hopped on the plane, I asked an expert at the UN there, well, which country should I visit to see what China's up to? And he said, just put a map of Africa on the wall and throw a dart at it and go. They're everywhere. In America, while think tanks and experts in Washington keep spitting out paper after paper debating if the world's running out of resources, and if so, which resource and what that date will be, China's not taking any chances. They are everywhere. They are clearing trees in Mozambique, building highways in Angola, looking for uranium in Zimbabwe, phone networks in rural Ghana, textile factories in Kenya. Half the supermarkets in Lesotho are owned by Chinese. The Chinese language is now a requirement in schools in Mauritius. In Santon, right now, the business center of Johannesburg, every new building going up are Chinese banks. There are more Chinese in Nigeria now than there were Britons during the height of the empire. And they are not there to spread democracy, folks. The main thrust by China, regardless of what party leaders claim, is to get the minerals to feed their economy back home, which, by the way, needs to grow about 9% a year, or else 25 million people join the unemployment doles in China. Uh, as you may or may not know, the number of social protests in China are now about 80,000 a year, 80,000 protests. And if it leads to more unrest, if the economy sinks, that will endanger the Communist Party's control, and they know it. So they've got to feed the machine. Bureaucrats in Beijing like to say that China's like an elephant riding a bicycle. If it slows down, it could fall off and the earth will quake. Today, China is the world's largest consumer of one commodity after another, copper, tin, aluminum, iron, timber. And Africa is the planet's largest repository of so many of them. Africa holds 90% of the world's cobalt, 90% of the platinum, 50% of the gold, 98% of the chromium, more oil reserves than North America, and on and on and on. Africa, in short, is the world's final frontier. I understand that Nebraska has more water reserves underground than any state in the continental U.S. There's a government convention across the street, and I spoke to some of the uh, water managers there. Uh, just as a comparison, Africa is estimated to have 40% of the world's potential hydroelectric power. Imagine that. And China is absolutely desperate for water and electricity. In short, China's invasion of Africa is, is redrawing the world's economic map and ultimately the political map. A former uh, U.S. Assistant Secretary of State here in the U.S. 
calls China's movement in Africa a tsunami. Uh, to be fair, the Chinese are without question doing positive things for Africa that the West has not been able or willing to do enough of since World War II. Highways, buildings, water pipelines, ports, much of it's substandard in quality, but a lot of it is also of good and great quality. I read on CNN not long ago that Lincoln here is considered one of the best places in the country to start a small business. Uh, just by way of contrast, the World Bank has labeled Congo the worst place to do business on the planet. Worse than Iraq. Worse than Afghanistan. Put another way, Congo is corrupt even by African standards. So if China is willing to take those risks, good for them and good for Africa, right? But we can't mince words. China today has a vastly corrupt business culture, which I experienced for myself while reporting there. It doesn't mean it will be that way in 10, 20, or 50 years, but it is today. We need to accept and recognize that. According to Transparency International, China is, along with India, among the top countries in terms of using bribery in business affairs overseas. It is the world's number one nation by far in terms of counterfeit products. And that's the subject I've done exhaustive research on in the mainland. For 20 years, the Communist Party has paid lip service to the promise to crack down on the counterfeiting, and they can't. They won't tell you why, but here's why. At least 15% of the economy in China is dependent on fakes. You tackle the fakes, the economy sinks. More unemployment, parties losing power. There's not one Chinese brand that has any uh, recognition globally. You probably can't name one. So until one exists, they have to steal and copy the West's brands, and they do it with impunity. You know, there's a, there's a shopping mall in Shenzhen over the Hong Kong border. It's, it's this towering, gleaming Oz um, of, of shopping called Lu Wu. It's the, it's the biggest, tallest mall I've ever seen. And it's filled entirely with counterfeit products of Western brands, mostly. Hong Kong tourists love to make day trips there and spend money. I think if uh, President Reagan was alive, he would say, President who tear down that mall? <laughs> Ain't going to happen. Too important to Shenzhen's economy. Now, how does that relate to Africa? According to Interpol, Africa recently became the number one transit point for Chinese counterfeit goods that move to the West. And Africa, as many of us know, has long been a dumping ground as well for those fakes, which has helped obliterate local industries in one country after another in Africa. And, you know, those light manufacturing industries are typically the first rung of an economy of a country advancing, and Africa's having trouble. I won't lay out the West's track record in Africa since World War II, as everybody pretty much knows enough, whether through incompetence, ignorance, bureaucracy, corruption, or the West's own desire to grab what it can. We've spent more than $500 billion, maybe up to a trillion, for Marshall plans, and we've hardly made a dent on the whole in poverty on the continent. 
The West, including America, has consistently failed to enact long-term policies that would really help the people there benefit ourselves as well. So as one Western government after another has been asleep in recent years, China's moved in. There are, there are two statistics that to me show the answer more than anything. In the 1980s, Africa received 30% of the world's direct foreign investment. Today it's around 7% and shrinking. In the 1970s, Africa's share of world trade was 5%. As of a couple of years ago, it was down to 1.5%. They're being left behind, perhaps permanently, in the dust of globalization. Africa is so desperate for everything, cash, trade, investment, infrastructure, and yet so powerless to negotiate good deals that it's pretty much up for sale to the highest bidder, and the highest bidder is China. At times when I was in sub-Sahara, it seemed to me that China's march into Africa seemed glorious and brimming with so much possibility and maybe the sub-Sahara's last chance to catch up with the world. And at other times, it looked just like a revamped, upgraded replay of colonialism. But at its best, China's quest is generating business that the West is too timid to undertake. But you have to make no mistake, the secrecy and elitism and corruption that already defines the government of China and so many of those in Africa are poised to usher in a toxic intercontinental corruption that we can hardly yet imagine. Not long ago, the New York Times Shanghai bureau chief, Howard French, wrote that China's economic revolution has led to, quote, an explosion of an old ethical order that bound the country together into a society that doesn't seem to know right from wrong and that often seems governed by, quote, what one can get away with. If you think tainted milk is hurting the Chinese citizens today, and we recently learned that the central government there is preventing people from seeking justice in those cases, we don't even know the extent that fake Chinese medicines are harming or killing African children, and they are by the thousands, because as regulators in Nigeria point out, there are no nations in the sub-Sahara except Nigeria at this point and South Africa that even have regulators who can monitor and collect the data. At home, in the mainland, China remains the largest jailer of journalists in the world. And frankly, it leads to Western news bureaus softening their reports. Um, if I was a reporter based in China, I think the odds are pretty high that I'd be tossed in prison or booted out of the country at some point. I've got this bad habit of following my nose wherever the reporting leads. Unacceptable in China. How has America dealt with this over the decades? Every single U.S. president since Nixon has said, if we trade with China, time is on our side. It will loosen the party's grip on power. And that's kind of been the mantra, hasn't it? Almost a religion. President George W. Bush reiterated it in 1999 when he said the case for trade in China is not just monetary but moral. But isn't that just a mere hope? Is there anything predestined about it? Can't it just as likely strengthen the party's grip? 
There's a scholar and former award-winning L.A. Times bureau chief, James Mann, and I think he's very insightful, and he's pointed out, look, trade is trade. It's not a magic potion for democracy. Just because you have teenagers in Shanghai wearing blue jeans and sipping their lattes at Starbucks doesn't mean they're going to break into a democracy soon. In fact, what you have in China is you have an emerging middle class and urban elite that have every reason to fear democracy and keep the status quo. And the reason is 900 million peasants and factory workers on the bottom rung. The Communist Party has been making a lot of inroads to get the private sector loyal. In 2003, 34% of private sector entrepreneurs were members of the party, and that's up from 7% in 1991. So you see where that's leading. They get tremendous incentives and commercial um, um, guanji connections, as they say, for doing so, for joining the party. But these are subjects people don't want to talk about today very much because it's called China bashing. It's not politically correct, at least until a week ago when Google finally woke up and smelled the roses and decided they would no longer serve as accomplices to the murdering of free speech there. Pay attention to that case. It's fascinating because Chinese citizens have been Googling like crazy in the last week or two, everything they can, everything they want, and the party leadership behind closed doors doesn't know what to do. Google's thrown down the gauntlet. What's the next move? Are they going to be thrown out of the country? In reality, Western firms have relied on a lack of democracy in China to instill stability so they can safely and comfortably knock out their products that are built with Africa's minerals in places like Shenzhen. Who in the West do you think will allow all the arrests of human rights activists and journalists to get in the way of their ongoing business with China and put it at risk? The West moved into China, created a manufacturing base there, knowing that it was more polluting than Europe, Japan, and the U.S., they cared about the cost of labor. And today we're reaping the results. Every presidential administration has not only pushed the message about how trade and business with China is the solution, but as each administration ends, isn't it interesting how waves of former U.S. officials suddenly go out and profit from it? Lobbyists, consultants. It started with Kissinger, George Bush, Sr., Bent Scowcroft, Madeleine Albright, GOP National Committee Chair Haley Barber, Clinton's Assistant Secretary of Agriculture Scott Shearer. The list just goes on. Former U.S. Trade Rep Mickey Cantor. Last June, just, just months after Obama took power, became president, a whole group of senior Commerce Department officials under George W. signed on as lobbyists for China. The revolving door, alive and well. And we know that, thanks to this lucrative business, China just became the number one polluting nation, and the U.S., of course, is number two. What most people don't know is that the region suffering the most from this pollution and climate change is the region contributing the least to it, the sub-Sahara. 
There's a University of Wisconsin expert, Jonathan Patz. He's one of the world's top experts in human health effects of environmental change, and he told me that we're disseminating death and disease from our energy consumptive lifestyle, and we're doing it to people who are not contributing to the problem. That's an unbelievable moral dilemma, isn't it? The one thing I learned in the Sub-Sahara is just how interconnected we are, how what happens in China and Africa might as well be happening in my backyard in New York or yours in Nebraska. Um, consider this, in Mozambique, there's trade with Africa, and actually you can see that China, if you add another year to 07, they're in, with 08 and 09, they've, they've surpassed the U.S. Beijing's leverage, look at the reserves, this figure is about a year old, but it's hard to nail. It's over $2 trillion now, and you can see what the U.S. is, is coping with. These are counterfeit products in Mozambique. You see them everywhere from China. Here's Mozambique. In Mozambique, a, a timber mafia has arisen in which Chinese operators are moving vast amounts of wood out of the country illegally, thanks to corrupt partnerships with government officials at the national and provincial levels. 70% of Mozambique is made up of forest and it's being decimated. The wood mostly goes to China, made into products that head west, especially to America, uh, which is China's number one customer of wood products. Maybe, maybe this. Um, they've got a name for it in Mozambique. They call it the Great Chinese Takeout. <laughs> it's not chow mein. Um, it's very sad. You actually have poor tribes that are enlisted by Chinese operators to carry the logs onto trucks. You can see the size of those logs. That's me. And they carry them with their bare hands and their bare feet sometimes. And these are logs that, I mean, some of them look more like buses. And too often the timber lords aren't paying the workers what they were promised. And, and they have to be careful, these workers, because... They can step on active landmines all the time in the forest, which are left over from the country's long civil war. So if you walk around Mozambique, you see so many uh, people and kids with one leg. It's a horrible, horrible situation. So I took a journey deep into that forest to, to try to visit the biggest Chinese operator there. Uh, he wasn't there at the time that I knocked, but I was soon surrounded by dozens of members of the Alukadi tribe that's been there for centuries, and they demanded that I pay them for the work that they did. They were promised $125 each for three months of backbreaking work, but they were only given 25 bucks. And I asked my guide, they're known as fixers in journalism, what's going on here? And he said that uh, they think that I'm the Chinese boss. And I eventually calmed them down, convinced them that I wasn't the boss and that I'm not Chinese. And then I heard their tragic stories. They, they threatened to go to war against the owner, but it was all talk. They're powerless. They're at the bottom rung of the timber ladder. Here are members of the uh, Alukadi tribe who I met with there, not happy. Here, here are some of the tribe members that work barefoot carrying the logs. 
That's what some of the logs look like destined for China. And here's a nice graph showing you China's taste for trees, how China's become the world's top consumer of timber in just a few years. You can see the roundwood imports moving up. The head of Mozambique's forest department sat down with me and she blew my socks off when she talked to me. She said, to understand others, you have to understand you, America. She called me America. If you stop buying Chinese products made from our wood, then we can conserve our timber more. She said, we are all part of this problem. And indeed, there isn't even enough wood in Mozambique to have a plywood industry or for desks and chairs in the schools. A lot of the kids sit on floors. Most of the timber gets exported to China as raw, unprocessed logs. So what essentially is happening is you're transferring most of the wood's value from one of the world's poorest economies to what's becoming one of the world's richest. Mozambique's now China's leading source for logs in East Africa. The wood moves to China through all kinds of actually illegal activities, overcutting beyond what Mozambique's government allows, mislabeling the species before exporting, undermeasuring, transfer pricing, which is under invoicing by Chinese operators to a parent company to avoid tax, customs and forestry officials easily bribed, and I think most important of all, government officials with their own business links to the Chinese operators. That's a timber yard of wood on its way to China. He wasn't about to let me in. You can see a local newspaper here in Mozambique screaming about what's happening. This is an aerial shot of timber that's brought aboard a large Chinese ship en route for the mainland. Interestingly, Mozambique, after its independence from Portuguese rule in 75, experimented with socialism so that they've still got street names in the capital with revolutionary names like Mao Street. Um, the Chinese are everywhere there. Trade between the two countries has expanded sixfold in seven years. Steel factories, textiles, shoes, motorbikes, hotels like this one. A $2 billion soft loan for a controversial dam that the World Bank said was too risky to fund. A new soccer stadium. Chinese build soccer stadiums all over Africa. A glittering convention center. A parliament building. A state-of-the-art airport makeover. And this is the humongous headquarters of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Mozambique. It's the most modern structure in the capital city built by China. China's giving science equipment to the country's main university, building a satellite campus. The government calls its relationship with Mozambique, it's a win-win, win-win, by two undeveloped countries that have endured years and decades of abuse, similar abuse. And Mozambicans say that they remember the Chinese were there with us when they were fighting for independence. 
but there's a senior economist for Mozambique's biggest business association. He's an American, and he told me, look, the Chinese are building things there in exchange for mining timber and fishing rights, and these are absolutely bad deals and non-transparent. Mozambique's losing their most vital long-term assets. Bribery's rampant, the public's kept in the dark, and despite an anti-corruption law that was put into effect five years ago, not a single official gets charged with bribery. Now, you can look at this and say it's really easy to blame China for all of this, but at least in regard to timber, they're really just following an economic model that has long benefited the West, and that continues to do so. So what is America doing about this? We're, we're certainly not helping them manage their forests better so that maybe they and us can profit. Instead, two years ago, the U.S. government signed a check over to Mozambique for $500 million under the Millennium Challenge Program for progress that they made on economic freedom, good governance, transparency. World Bank called the country one of the greatest success stories anywhere in the world. It was all hogwash. Last month, the respected human rights group Freedom House cited Mozambique for erosions of freedom over the last year or two relating to political inclusion, electoral reform, transparency and economic governance in the fight against corruption. Marcelo Moss, perhaps the best investigative reporter in Mozambique, told me, you can expose corruption, but you'll never see follow-up by judicial institutions. Chinese companies come here, they don't follow the rules in forestry because they have partnerships with ministers and politically connected people. Let's go to Zambia, where copper is the bread and butter of the country. The biggest China government-owned mine is, by all accounts, the most ruthless operator, paying the least to workers, exploiting them, and exposing them to harsh, unsafe conditions. Like the timber that winds its way to us, the copper winds its way into our China-made Apple iPods. So maybe we can drown out the cries of all the people at the bottom while we listen to our music. The son of the nation's former vice president in Zambia told me that the Chinese are scooping up copper licenses as many as they can get. If you walk in with $100,000 in a briefcase, he said, it's yours. What will Zambia look like in 10 years, he asked me. Will my children be working for a Chinese company? or will my children still have access to mining? He then told me something that really reverberates in my head still. He said, when Bill Clinton came and Laura Bush came with him and everybody came to see them here in Lusaka and they talked about AIDS, 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 we know we have an AIDS problem. We don't need to keep being reminded of it. We need trade. We want the American dream. Here are two young Chinese entrepreneurs pursuing that dream in Zambia. Um, a couple of wonderful guys. They have 500 employees in Shanghai making refined copper products, and they're typical of a lot of the Chinese entrepreneurs combing Zambia for resources. Frank and his brother Michael Wang, they're in their 20s. Um, they, they told me they could lose their whole investment, but that's the risk of life. They figure if they win, they could reap gains of 100 times their stake. 
and what they want ultimately, sell copper products to the U.S. Frank says, most of the top 100 companies in the U.S. moved to China. What do they need? Plastic, steel, copper, aluminum. People are crazy about resources. China is so competitive, we came to Africa. China offers these entrepreneurs interest-free loans, all kinds of economic incentives, and they help protect them if they get into trouble. They crossed the border into Congo, and they had trouble with authorities there who wanted big bribes, so they called the Chinese embassy, they told me, and said, help. They want us to pay bribes, and they were told by the Chinese embassy, you came with money, pay them. In 2005, the biggest mining disaster in the history of Zambia took place here in Chambishi. This is uh, NFC, which is the Chinese state-owned explosives factory. It's a company aptly named B. Grimm. I'm serious. Killed 46 Zambians, and many are buried in this makeshift cemetery outside the mine's main gate. What caused the explosion? Who knows? The Zambian government won't release findings of the probe, and China's government won't talk either. But they believe it was due to heavy use of unskilled casual workers, which were cheap to use. You know, in China, if you read the party press there, they refer to all these dead people as martyrs. In recent years, there have been a lot of riots by mining workers and against their, their Chinese uh, managers. Uh, there's an, a councilman for one of the wards here in Chambishi and also an employee told me that the safety's terrible. They only have portable extinguishers, which they can't use for big fires, and they keep pushing for, for bigger extinguishers, but the Chinese managers don't want them. This is Michael Sada. He's running on an anti-Chinese platform, uh, opposition leader. He almost won the presidency in, in late 06, and his campaign was so effective, he threatened to kick China out of Zambia, and he called them investors, not investors. Um, it actually prompted Beijing to, despite its off-stated policy of, we don't interfere with other countries, they threatened to suspend all investment in Zambia if this guy wins. He lost. He has a much bigger chance of winning the election next year and becoming president. Uh, he told me, look, I have nothing against the Chinese. What I have, what I'm against is that the Chinese have the partnership of a horse and a rider, and the horse gets the carrots. The Chinese have never changed, no parties, no elections, and they're creating slave labor with scant regard for our local culture. We don't hate the Chinese, but they should treat us like human beings. China uses all this flowery language, which you can read in the People's Daily, about how we're a selfless friend. They use words like selfless friend, giving billions because Africa needs it. We're wanting a harmonious relationship unlike the West, which has a colonial attitude. They won't impose their will 
on another country, which is actually welcome relief after decades of Western loan offers premised on good governance and respect for human rights. But there are strings attached, absolutely. Every African country that wants to take Chinese money has to break their ties to Taiwan, all relations. And they usually have to use all Chinese workers instead of the local African workers, which creates a real problem in these countries. And China, China also doesn't hesitate to create more lasting symbols of its benevolence, parliament buildings in Uganda and Congo, the presidential palace in Sudan, the Supreme Court in Namibia, an entirely new administrative capital, a Washington of sorts, arising in Equatorial Guinea, one of the most corrupt countries on the planet. And they build soccer stadiums everywhere. These monuments not only distract rest of local populations, but one of the continent's best-known businessmen told me, you know, it seems to be part of a subtler psychological strategy here. When the people are recreating in a soccer stadium, you know, they automatically revere the Chinese who built it. When the parliament is sitting, they'll automatically revere the Chinese. Back in the DRC Congo, these pictures are of Congo. That's a main street in Congo to show you what conditions are like. Most of the minerals are leaving the country illegally via Chinese operators who use women and kids to mine it and where rebels have long used the business to finance wars. It's estimated there are thousands of Chinese in the mining provinces, but they're not the ones swinging the pickaxes. Uh, in fact, about one to two million local Congolese earning three bucks on a good day are frequently indentured to Chinese middlemen and financiers. You've heard of blood diamonds. There's also blood cobalt, blood coltan, blood copper. America and China over recent years have been the world's largest users and some of these products help power our cell phones and our laptops. We are all interconnected. China exports 40% of its GDP with nearly 60% of those exports sourced from foreign-owned corporations on the mainland. We are all chained to what's happening there, and maybe you have a better idea of what's behind that made-in-China price tag over in Walmart. It's an economic model that's at once formidably efficient and tragically flawed. There was a summit not long ago for U.S. businesses in Cape Town, and a director of the U.S. Export-Import Bank said he was stunned that a session focusing on China did not discuss human rights and it made no difference between America and China. He said there is a difference. So South Africa's trade minister said, isn't the U.S. being a little subjective in its focus on human rights? Why, not the, why was this issue not raised about U.S. businesses in China? It's a great point. And, but you may ask, surely Darfur, Sudan, these are examples where the West's moral position is a shining light. China's helping through their massive oil investments prop up a rotten dictatorship, hundreds of thousands killed in Darfur, no argument. But look at what America does in Equatorial Guinea. 
I was the first American reporter, I think, in about three or four years to visit. You can see that little speck of a country, even though our government officials don't like to see it. Um, the last two reporters who were there were thrown out for uh, espionage or asked to leave because they asked questions. This population is 500,000 people, and the capital is Malibu with about 70,000. Tiny, but it's in, the, it's in the heart of Africa's Gulf of Guinea, which is, has so much oil. And Equatorial Guinea, that little speck, has become the sub-Sahara's third largest oil exporter after Angola and Nigeria. And it's a strategically vital place where the U.S. and China are at each other's throats trying to get the oil contracts. So it's a great place to watch, you know, how that scramble for resources is unfolding. Um, sadly, Equatorial Guinea is, is more like a corrupt extended family business that just happened to cook up a national anthem of its own. It's, it's on the top of every shameful list in the world, most censored countries, most corrupt. Uh, there's no free press. I couldn't even find a bookstore there. Um, but the American oil industry has been cozying up to the dictator who's run the place for 30 years and have, has put about $10, $15 billion in the ground. Um, he recently won the latest election. 97% of the vote. He keeps winning every four or five years with 97. Although the joke in Equatorial Guinea is that he keeps winning with 110% in most of the towns. Our ambassador spoke there about human rights in the mid-90s and he received death threats. The U.S. shut the embassy. George W. reopened it with a new ambassador who knew how to keep his mouth shut. America is Equatorial Guinea's dominant foreign investor. You've got Exxon, Hess, Chevron, Marathon. And yet for a country with fewer people than El Paso, despite an economy with the highest average growth rates, 30% in the world over the last decade, more than half the population doesn't have access to potable water. You can't even find a greater contrast anywhere in Africa between the haves and have-nots. The state-run radio station broadcasts songs warning citizens they'll be crushed if they speak out against the regime. When I arrived, the U.S. Embassy refused to see me and eventually stopped returning my calls. Very unusual for a seasoned reporter in a foreign country to experience. And believe me, they knew I was there from the moment my plane hit the runway but I don't think they wanted me to witness what was happening there, and they certainly didn't want to talk about it. This is a nation where you need a permit if you want to have 10 people at your house for a barbecue. It is only in such isolated madhouses that so much common sense gets butchered that Obiang supporters can say with sincerity, well, he's, at least he's better than his predecessor, his uncle, who used to round up his opponents by the hundreds and put them in a stadium and shoot them while a band played Those Were the Days to drown out their screams. Um, the Equatorial Guinea government takes in $4 billion a year in oil revenues, and yet every building of any size is owned by the president's family or government ministers, who are usually one and the same. 
there's Obiang. You're not allowed to take pictures like this, so I, I did take some nerve-wracking risks, but there he is. Posters all over. Here are local residents trying to get some clean water. Here's what most of the towns look like. That's the dictator's son, who may become the next president there. China, China now obtains a third of its oil from Africa, and the race is on in which E.G., this country, which is an American stronghold, can be a central battleground. Um, as, as Obiang's son, Gabriel, told me, you know, China is offering deals and projects and loans at rates that America can't touch. And maybe we'll all be speaking Chinese here eventually. China's getting all the new contracts, most of the new contracts. They're building, they're building a new capital for the country. You can be thrown in prison for criticizing this government, which is why, since there's no newspapers, you have to uh, learn what's going on in bars and cover your mouth when you talk to oil workers so that spies actually don't report you to the government. Now, why is China gaining ground there? Because a Senate committee here in 2004 found a bank in Washington had massive amounts of Obiang's money and found that our oil companies were, were contributing to corruption and giving the family money for deals. Uh, Senate hearings in Washington were pretty intense. And when Senator Carl Levin said, I don't see a fundamental difference between dealing with an Obiang and dealing with a Saddam Hussein, Obiang heard that and said, from now on, China will be our principal partner for the development of Equatorial Guinea. Condoleezza Rice did her best to turn that around. She welcomed Obiang in 2006 to Washington and called him a good friend of the US. Despite her State Department's annual reports that criticize the regime for corruption, poor human rights, serious abuses, but who reads those reports? But Obiang may be a good friend in the US, but China one-upped it. Two years ago, China's foreign minister visited EG and called the country and called China EG's best friend. Whatever power or influence the U.S. and the oil majors have had in the past to maybe get E.G. to start behaving like a democracy, will they ever exercise it now there with China riding their coattails? I don't see it ever happening. I want to close. I see. I could talk about this all night. What are you all doing later? I could, I could just go... I'll leave you with two things, you know. Africans and the Chinese see Western hypocrisy sometimes for what it is. You know, the World Bank screams how China's influence threatens to wipe out a decade of their, decades of their efforts to improve human rights and transparency. But 
I'll tell you about the World Bank. I did a series of investigations in the last two years probing the bank, and I know it pretty intimately, I believe, with a few other reporters knowing more at this point about corruption and cover-ups within the World Bank. Um, if it was not for insiders leaking documents and information out, you'd never know what's happening there, just like in China, but with your money. Board of directors meetings are secret. African projects they undertake. There are no operation reports made public, so you see what's happening to your money. I got hold of an internal document, a World Bank memo. They were frightened at the World Bank office in China because they were embarked on an anti-corruption drive. You may remember the biggest in the World Bank's history. And China was threatening to stop working with the bank if they didn't water down the anti-corruption platform. What happened? The bank watered it down. Then they falsely denied to me that China ever made the threat. But the document shows otherwise. China's the second largest borrower of bank funds despite its trillions of reserves. And China threatened to stop borrowing from the World Bank if this anti-corruption drive wasn't toned down. Can you imagine going into your bank and threatening to stop borrowing? The world is topsy-turvy in this area. The, I see I'm running out of my time allotted. <laughs> I, I, I want to read you a quote from leave it with uh, Rafiq Joseph here. He heads the Mozambique Government Center for Promoting Investments. You can see he's holding the Millennium Challenge Compact and happy about the $500 million America just gave them. And he said to me, China treats us like a peer. They have a culture of respect for other people. They don't interfere. They don't invade countries. Americans, they don't even know where Mozambique is. And you Americans are trying to export your morals, which even in your own country don't work. How do you like that, kicking the teeth from a country that we just signed five, your money over to? I don't know how it's all going to play out, um, but we're gonna, things are happening so fast now with China and Africa. Deals are announced almost weekly, and it's going to be difficult to track. We need more research, but hopefully we'll know more in the, in the years ahead. And hopefully we'll see some improvement. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, if you have questions, please write them on the cards and give them to the ushers, and, and we'll uh, deal with as many of them as we can. Uh, while those questions are coming in, let me uh, start with some questions that come from the uh, students, the Thompson Scholars, who uh, met earlier with uh, Richard Behar. I'm happy to answer every easy question that's thrown at me. Okay. Uh, we'll see whether this is an easy question. <laughs> Uh, given that there are already more Chinese living in Nigeria than there were Britons during the height of empire, is there any evidence that social constructs like intermarriage will happen in the coming decades? 
I don't see that happening there with, with China and Africa, but it's very interesting in Angola. Um, it's very hard to get information, but the Angolan government, as part of a deal with China, agreed to make Chinese citizens after a certain number of years. But when they realized what that meant, they started backing off of it. Uh, they just don't want that kind of assimilation. But I, I, I don't see that kind of relationship looming because Chinese, when they come to Africa, mostly keep to themselves in their own compounds, their own villages. And I think that's also just part of their culture, um, not to really mingle, at least at this point in the culture. And Africans generally are not very happy about that. They feel that uh, it's, it's unsocial of them. Uh, how is China's treatment of Africa different from the West's treatment of China before its success? Well, the Opium Wars. China always evokes the Opium Wars, which are over. I mean, the, the, the West certainly, and, and Europe's certainly more to, more, got more baggage on this than America does, has not has not treated China well in its history, but at a certain point, you've got to deal with the present. You can't keep going back hundreds of years and, and talk about who was right and who was wrong. We've got to deal with a, a, a economy now that is growing exponentially. You've got a country, China, that is going through an industrial revolution that we went through here at about 10 times the speed. So you've got to deal with the, the new realities. But look, make no mistake, the West has botched plenty up, as I talked about tonight. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, there are no heroes here at this stage. What are China's intentions in Africa besides natural resources? You know, the, the Politburo, Cleb Sunter is uh, Africa, South Africa's leading futurologist. He worked in the mining industry, and he says the Politburo in China is like a, uh, the world's largest corporation. And they're thinking 50, 100 years out. Uh, we think of quarters in America like Wall Street, quarterly results. A quarter to China is 25 years. Um, they need the resources desperately. And at the same time, I mean, there's no sign really that they're trying to um, change the politics and governments of countries, but, but there are signs that they also are. When, when, the, when the Kenyan uh, violence erupted after the elections, Chinese leading officials said, well, this just goes to prove that democracy, you know, doesn't work at a place like Kenya when actually what it proves is Kenya needs more democracy, not less. Um, as China becomes closer to one African country after another, they tend to want to vote along with China on issues. Like we, have, we have a problem now in the UN and other institutions with China kind of not wanting to get on board with us on like Iranian sanctions for their nuclear development. So you can see a situation where, as African countries get more power in the UN and these institutions, they could help China vote as blocks, and, and that'll, ha that'll have some ramifications as well. We'll get a question from the audience. Has China 
shown interest in spreading political pressure uh, or other interest, I assume, to North Africa and the Middle East? They're definitely making less inroads in the Middle East. They've been focused a lot on Latin America and South America. In fact, you could, you could do an entire program just on what they're doing there. Um, in North Africa, I mean, certainly in terms of Sudan, um, but, but they're not moving in as aggressively as they are in the sub-Sahara. I mean, these, a lot of these North African countries can take care of themselves. I mean, you can't really see China moving in and buying up Egypt. Uh, that's not going to go down very well. Um, but the weakest, most vulnerable, most mineral-rich area is the sub-Saharan, and that's where they're focused. And it'll take, it'll take, it could take a century to deplete, if you can even deplete all the minerals and oil there. Do the Chinese understand the impact of tropical disease in Africa, and if so, what are the Chinese doing in this matter? I don't see evidence that the Chinese are doing anything on the disease front. I could be wrong, but I didn't see it there. I see U.S. corporations doing more in that regard, um, spending a lot to, to deal with malaria control, for example. Um, China may start to do more because they're having problems. Um, it, it's pretty much a secret in Angola, except the people who see it happening there, but Chinese workers have been dropping like flies and dying of malaria, and it just gets covered up. The bodies get brought back to China. A, a check for maybe $5,000 is paid to the family, and more workers arrive. So they're going to they're gonna have increasingly problems with the diseases. You know, most African villages in World Bank studies, or a lot of them, are polyparasitical. It's a word I didn't know until I caught a parasite, uh, which means that these villagers have two or more parasites, and it affects the cognitive ability of kids and, and helps, keep help, helps keep Africa in its dire predicament as well. So if China's moving in, China's going to have to deal with that disease problem. China seems to use soft power exclusively. Do you see or predict any use of military force? Well, they've certainly been providing massive military help to Sudan, and all of it's kept very secret. It's very hard to get information out of there. Uh, I don't think there's any question that China helped prop up Mugabe uh, during the last elections in Zimbabwe when he almost clearly lost and would have stepped down except that China at that point started sending massive amounts of, of, of arms and weapons in. Uh, weapons are caught periodically uh, by, by different countries and sometimes turn back, but China is a major provider of arms, just as America is to Africa. And our, our military program is only going to be uh, increasing because of the terrorist threat that we're worried about. So Obama has already talked about doing that. Uh, with the World Cup in South Africa this summer, how much has China helped South Africa uh, build for the event? I'm not aware of, of, of whether they have. I mean, there's a, there is a massive Chinatown in Johannesburg, and, and there are um, 
massive numbers of, of Chinese businesses, but I don't, know, I don't know whether they have or not. I'm clueless on that. What is your assessment of the government of Liberia, and I assume associated with this, uh, of any Chinese activity there? Yeah, Liberia is in an interesting position because they're open to all sides, and, and they also would like to benefit from both sides, uh, America and uh, China. You know, it's interesting that when George W. Bush was talking about opening AFRICOM, you know, our military whatever they were creating, there was never, it was humanitarian military sort of thing that nobody wanted in Africa. So he said, well, we'll put it in Germany and maybe we'll have a little office somewhere in Africa. Liberia, I think, was the only country that was going to welcome it. So at the same time, Liberia is doing massive resource deals with China. So who's going to win there? Are there African countries with minimal natural resources? If there are, does China pay any attention to them? That's a good question. There are 49 countries in the sub-Sahara. Um, boy, the ones that pop to my mind have resources. Well, Lesotho doesn't really have much going on, but there are more Chinese per square inch in Lesotho probably than any other, uh, in any other country. Um, Botswana, diamonds. Um, I think uh, most, if not all, of the African countries in the sub-Sahara have massive resources. Their biggest problem has been transporting and digging it and moving it out to the ports and the coasts. China's building networks from one port in one end of Africa to another to move it all out. What was your scariest uh, journalistic experience during your travel in Africa uncovering the China-Africa connection? Well, maybe flying in a few of the uh, local airlines. Uh, <laughs> in Congo, those planes just keep dropping out of the sky. Actually, on one of the airplanes that I got off of in Mozambique, I learned afterwards that insurance wouldn't cover anything because I had flown that airline if I had crashed. I'd say the scariest moment was Equatorial Guinea. You know, when you arrive in this uh, despotic, horrible place where if you criticize the government, you'll be taken to the cooler, as they call it, for a few days. I knew that the moment I got there, every hour was a gift. And at, at a moment's notice, I could be uh, moved out. I didn't think they would harm me, but they would certainly push me out. Um, and frankly, that tribe surrounding me in Mozambique was a little bit frightening at, at the beginning. They were pretty angry, but... Uh, I'd say those were the biggest uh, fears. Catching the second biggest killer after malaria was a little scary, too, I have to say. I, I spent months recovering from that. What do you want us to take from your presentation? Is your purpose here for us to trash our iPods? <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, no. You know, you've got to be realistic. I, I think the purpose is, and, and where, frankly, where investigative journalism serves, is just open our eyes to what's happening. And you don't have to solve everything immediately. You've got to know what's happening, though, 
before you can have a chance to address it. I mean, we, like I said before, we are all interconnected in such ways now with globalization and the world economy that I don't know how we're going to get out of it. But the only way you can start is by, is by just knowing exactly what's going on on the ground. And I don't think, um, certainly the press in America hasn't been on the ground covering what's happening there as well as they should be. When China totally dominates African trade, what happens to the U.S. economy? Well, that's predicting going out, huh? I think a lot of that depends on whether they're going to be locking up the oil supplies so that they're just directed toward China. There was a lot of criticism of American officials of China for this. You don't lock up oil. Everybody should be able to trade and deal with it. And they're locking up long-term deals on oil. We need African oil to reduce our dependence on Mideast oil. And if we're, if we're blocked out of Africa or a lot of Africa in the future, you know, we've got huge oil investments there. We're, it's not like we're not on the ground. It's just that when you look at the numbers, they're trending in a, in a, in a direction of China. Um, where would we get the oil? If resources are running out of key things, and, and again, the experts debate this all the time, then we could find a problem. But the bigger problem is Africa. I mean, Africa is the last frontier of this stuff. Where's Africa going to find its Africa when it's ready to advance? Or, or are they just going to forever be the world's mine shaft? Uh, let me finish with this question. Uh, in view of all that you've said, what should the United States do? Ah! Well, if you look at what Clinton and Bush and now Obama, our, our African policy, we don't have a real African policy, and maybe we just have too much going on. Obama uh, gave an absolutely beautiful, beautiful speech in Ghana when he was there last summer, and if you haven't read it, you should. It was, uh, but it was, it was rhetoric. It was just a better version of the rhetoric that the other administrations have said good governance, we're behind you, here's some more money for disease, um, we're going to increase some military help. It, they didn't, he didn't even mention China. China just doesn't come up. They're avoiding it. And it's important that he confront it, that everyone confront it and figure out how can we invest and develop Africa like the Chinese are doing it, or are we just going to lose it? Are we going to lose the continent? Um, I, where's the plan? Where's the beef? Please join me in thanking Richard Behar. Thank you.